Barely Science Podcast. A year's gone by and a lot has changed, but I'm back here on the Barely Science Podcast with my co-host, Alec. <laughs> it's, uh, it's been a hot minute. Yeah, we're, we're titans of consistency on this podcast. But while we've not been doing the podcast, a whole lot has changed. I guess we could make the excuse that we've been pretty busy finishing things called PhDs and moving to different parts of the country and world. And then a whole lot of other stuff's been happening in the world as well. So Alec, what's been going on with your life over the past year? <laughs> uh, well, I think it's closer than two years now. Oh um, but yeah, so like you finished PhD now living on the opposite side of the country. Um, but like you mentioned, the, the weirdness has only gotten weirder. I think we're all pretty sick to death of COVID news, at least the depressing side. Um, but I'm hoping we can maybe talk about today some of the, the strangeness that has come along with it, especially on the the junk science that has started to crop up amongst the, the worldwide pandemic. Yeah, I guess this is a case of wherever there's problems, uh, scientists try and solve the solutions, but then also we have people that you could describe as barely scientists that also come up and try and offer solutions to the situation. So in this podcast, to get back into the swing of things, we thought we'd go through some of the... Um, more interesting things we've seen related to the current pandemic and give our thoughts on a whole lot of these in general i'll just put it out there bad ideas we just got to keep it current you know because we're, we're such regular consistent podcasters we just got to keep up with the times that, yeah i mean like it's not like it's going to take another year and uh, new phds for us to make a new <laughs> episode um well maybe so before we get into talking about these things, I should give the disclaimer that we are both trained astrophysicists, so our views will be uh, aligned more with that. Uh, so a lot of things we'll be talking about will be from what we've seen. Um, but also, don't listen to us as well as any other astronomer when it comes to uh, actual information about, say, the origin of the pandemic or um, anything else that you might want to trust your life on. You're telling me it wasn't manufactured simultaneously in both the US and China in secret labs to be released onto the other? Well, that is uh, certainly a theory, one <laughs> which I won't touch with a very long pole, because we should be social distancing as we're being advised by all health boards. Oh, what a And segue. you should be washing your hands. <laughs> uh, and don't touch your face. Uh, so these are all good practices to make sure that you don't um, catch or spread the current disease that's going around or any disease in the near future that we may uh, be inflicted with. Anyway, that's uh, good practices out of the way. Let's start talking about things that might be considered BS. Now, I wanted to get the first thing out of the way because it's, I think, one of the more harmful aspects that have come up from the conspiracy side of the internet. And that's this idea that this pandemic is the product of 5G connectivity. Oh, wow. Uh, there's a lot of things which we could try and work out what they're talking about. But as far as my brain goes, 5G, that sounds like it's something to do with radios, electors, radios. So hey. 
Alec, tell us about what 5G might be. Uh, so this, this whole thing just amazes me. Um, uh, but it also it gives me flashbacks as well. I remember, I think this happens every time we get a new G. Like we had 3G on 4G and when Wi-Fi became popular, um, you get these ideas spreading once again that, oh no, it's going to give you cancer. It's going to do terrible things to you. Um, it's going to make your petrol explode. Although <laughs> that one still seems to be around. <laughs> Haven't got rid of that one yet. Um, but I guess it's worth explaining like, what each G is. Um, so the different, uh, these are all to do with mobile um, connectivity. Um, and so these refer to different generations of wireless connectivity. Um, so starting off with the first generation, which you know, allowed us to actually have mobile phones. And what a uh, pandemic was associated with that one? Uh, I I, probably another SARS. We'll give it that. <laughs> sure, whatever. <laughs> sure, cor- that's probably correlated, right? Uh, yeah. Um, and so for the currently we're on 4G. So most modern mobile phones will be on 4G. Um, and so this allows us to be able to stream video, um, you know, voice over IP, all those things that you do with a like essentially high bandwidth internet connection to your phone. Um, mm. What is worth bearing in mind, though, uh, like you mentioned at the start, that this all this technology is enabled through radio communications. Um, and so the really kind of dumb way to say it is that basically we're flashing light at our devices to send signals. Um, mm. It's a type of light that we can't see. Um, and it's a type of light that is really useful for transferring information, but it's still light. And um, so this is what radio is. Um, so radio, um, well, like any form of light, we talk about it in terms of, of its wavelength, um, which you can also think like a color. Um, so the colors that we can normally see, um, like, so, for example, what kind of uh, wavelength do you usually look at, Ryan, when you're in your optical astronomy images? Um, well, it's been getting getting redder as I go on in my you know, very short career. I think it's like 600 nanometers now that I look at. Ah, okay. So, yeah, hundreds of nanometers are what you can see with your eyes. And as they get longer and longer, they look redder and redder. Um, and so the kind of light I look at is the reddest of the red light, which is what we call radio. Um, but that's, it's actually a very broad term. There's a lot of different um, frequencies or wavelengths within that kind of umbrella term of radio. Um, some of it we use for astronomy, um, some of it we use for cooking food, and a lot of it we use for telecommunications now um, with different parts of it used for different purposes. Um, and so for in your home, you probably are using two different frequencies. Um, you probably have a 2.4 gigahertz Wi-Fi router and as well as probably has a five gigahertz one if it's slightly newer too. So they're probably parts of it you've heard of. Um, the, so 5G is looking to add a whole mix of new technologies in um, that's really looking to boost how fast and how much data you can send to your mobile device. Um, and in fact, this is, I don't know whether this is an indictment of Australian internet or how good 5G is going to be. But in many cases, it'll likely be faster than a wired connection. Of it. Right. Yeah. So I guess, do you think that 5G is dangerous to anyone's health? That's the <laughs> ultimate question that these people are, are, are asking. Yeah. Uh, so there's like a few things that, well, it's worth talking about like what 5G is actually going to be and how it's different. Um, so you may have actually even started to see some of the 5G infrastructure around, um, particularly if you're in a city. 
Um, so they're starting to build these smaller towers around the place, these 5G towers on top of buildings. Um, and that's because 5G is now opening up a new part of the spectrum to be used. So more wavelengths that are available to be used. And this is what they call millimeter wave. So the wavelengths are millimeters in size. Um, so there's a, a bit of a trade-off you have when you're trying to transmit a signal using radio. Uh, the shorter the wavelength you use, uh, the more data you can transfer on it, but it can't travel as far. Um, basically, objects and things like that will tend to block the signal more, um, so you can't transfer it as far. So you have this trade-off between more data, or, but not being able to transfer it as far. Um, so the workaround, so they're using up more uh, higher frequencies to try and transmit more data and as well as clear up some space at lower frequencies as mm. well. So it'll make basically the whole spectrum a bit more clear, at least for telecommunications. Um, and so what that means is though, you'll need to be closer to an antenna to get a good signal because it's going to be higher right. frequency. Um, so the, that's part of what these little things are going around. So they, those two technologies are kind of coupled together. Um, and they're doing a few other things as well, like stacking way more antennas into one another. So you can like have way more devices connected to one, you know, one central um, transmitter. Yeah. And they're also doing fancy other signal processing too, um, so that you, more people can be connected and sending and transmitting data at the same time with less interference. Right. Um, so that's all sounds pretty cool and something that we're, probably benefit everyone but i guess the fact that there are more towers going up and more people can see them might be sparking uh, more concerns i know in a, a lot of countries and in fact new zealand isn't excluded from this people have actually been attacking the new 5g towers setting them on fire and just harassing the workers oh. around them so that's why i said earlier that i think this one is possibly the most dangerous of the conspiracies around the uh, coronavirus because this is actually maybe endangering workers and uh, just equipment and stuff, which seems ludicrous, but um, that's yeah. the world we live in, as we'll get on to. Um, but, you know, it's something that you've poked at me before um, for being a radio astronomer. And this is the thing that I find weird, is that so radio waves have the least amount of energy per photon. Hmm. Um, so they can do actually very relatively little to you. Um, so compared to things like what we call ionizing radiation, like gamma rays that can really damage your DNA, um, radio waves can't. They just don't have enough energy in each individual photon to even affect you. Um, mm. And so actually, when you stand outside, you're being bathed in radio light, not from anything man-made, but just from the sun, and as well as from the galaxy too. The galaxy is a huge source of radio waves. Um, and so that's all coming to you all the time, and that would be there, but it doesn't... It, there's no mechanism for it to do anything to you. Um, it's the same reason why <laughs> petrol stations with like no mobile phone signs annoy me as well, because mm. there's no mechanism for the radio wave to interact with the petrol to set it on fire. It just well, we all know radio technology is some strange form of witchcraft, so uh, that you've is always just got to be careful. It's all black magic radio. But, yeah. but seriously, it's just like flashing lights. Um, and so I, it's very hard to see the connection to something like a disease like COVID-19, especially when we know it's caused by a virus. Um, and like mm. many other diseases, you know, it's caused by some kind of germ. Um, and germ theory has been around for a little while too. Mm. Um, but like anything, I think it's worthwhile. <laughs> it's 
not just about correlations. You know, we have a correlation here, or maybe a correlation causation fallacy that's causing this, where yeah. we have COVID-19 occurring at the same time as 5G towers are going up. So people are seeing this. Mm. But, I mean, we can test this by saying, well, there's plenty of areas where that are going to have um, higher infection rates of COVID-19 without, in the absence of 5G towers, because it still hasn't rolled out everywhere. Yeah. So it's a very easily testable hypothesis and one which doesn't hold any weight. If they were installing gamma ray towers, then I'd be a bit <laughs> more be a cautious. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but there's a side concern along with this, though, that now, and this is always the problem as a radio astronomer, mm. um, that all these radio signals are directly interfering with what we want to look at coming from the sky. Um, and so for a long time, these millimeter waves have been kind of a free zone. They've been kind of like, they haven't been very badly affected. It's been a lovely clean mm. part of the spectrum for astronomers to use. And that's going to start changing as more and more devices start using 5G and 5G um, towers start rolling out in more areas. Um, yeah. It's going to become more of a problem. So it's going to clean up the spectrum for communications, but absolutely trash the spectrum for radio astronomy. Yep, continue to do that. Nice. That's that's how you measure progress: is the loss of radio <laughs> astronomy bad. capabilities. Yep. <laughs> so I think I think I'm happy to make a ruling on the idea that 5G created coronavirus to be complete <laughs> BS. Yeah. How about you? Yeah, I I can say this very strongly that yeah, calling a hard BS. <laughs> Well, there we did it. We've solved a, a global problem. We did it, Reddit. So let's uh, move on to the next thing. This one, when I saw it, annoyed me quite a bit uh, because it strikes dear to, to my heart, being an astronomer. And that was a, a very prominent or apparently prominent astronomer in the UK making claim that the virus came from space. So Professor uh, Chandra Wakram Singh yeah. at Buckingham Center of Astrobiology made the very um, controversial claim, I'll say, that the coronavirus came in on an enormous meteorite that burnt up above China on the 11th of October, 2019. Wow. So it's, um, it's, this is, well, it leaves me speechless every time I think of it. But it's an example of what's called panspermia, this idea that you could take life that developed somewhere else in the universe, put it upon an asteroid, send it across the void of space, and have it impact upon another body. And then if you have sufficiently robust organisms upon that asteroid, then you'll transport life from one place to another. Now, this is a credible scientific theory, but it begins to get a little incredible when we apply it to this situation yeah i mean i think panspermia it always strikes me as a cool idea but like a lot of theories i'm like oh how do you test it like mm. what's the observable um you know how can we tell the difference between you know life that developed on its own versus life that was generated you know carried across from somewhere else um but what, what's particularly wacky about this, and I, I, there's been other panspermia claims too, where you know they find like bacterial particles in the atmosphere or something like that. It's like, what's the probability here that we find a virus which is incredibly similar to viruses that we 
know developed on the earth that we know we already have. So like coronaviruses are actually a very large family of um, all very similar viruses. So it just so happens that a vi this particular virus, um, SARS-CoV-2, developed in space and then made its way here and just so happened to land in China. Well, you know, the universe works in mysterious ways. Um, the, yeah, so there were a number of quotes in the articles that this professor had been in that uh, were dubious at best. One of them was, there is growing evidence that says this DNA comes from space and it is carried into our atmosphere on micrometeorites before being dissipated. Um, I'm not sure what evidence he is pointing towards because so far we've found no evidence of DNA outside of our solar system. There have been a few experiments by various astrobiology groups that have sent um, high altitude balloons up into the atmosphere with little containers where they seal the container and make sure it's as um, sterilized as possible on the ground. They send it up, open it up when it's up in the, I, I don't know, say like uh, 40, 50 plus kilometers above the Earth's surface and see what kind of molecules and bacteria fall into it. And then once it's on the ground, they test it. And there have been no cases of these experiments in the high atmosphere that have shown any uh, bacteria that's conclusively not of the earth or even dna that's not of the earth so uh he's he seems to be a bit mental <laughs> but here's, so here's another there's a couple of other things on this um i don't know if this is true specifically for uh, the coronavirus but i remember from my this uh, i'm full disclosure i'm remembering back to my high school biology but i seem to remember that viruses actually don't contain dna they only contain rna yeah, in this case, the, the COVID does, has RNA in it. So, yeah, this, this guy doesn't really know what he's talking about. <laughs> um, but it's a, a case of um, someone using their credibility to push their pet theory of panspermia yeah. over the good of actual public information, and which is another, what annoyed me the most. Yeah. Another interesting thing is that, um, and this has been like a relatively good thing for the public health crisis, um, which is that, coronaviruses have this, have a relatively weak speaking, you know, relative to other viruses. Um, they have like this lipid layer that's actually relatively easy to break down. And once it's broken, the virus is dead. Um, mm -hmm. So that's why you know, alcohol hand rubs effective, washing your hands is effective. Um, there are other viruses that are quite a lot more hardy to those things. Um, and so I, <laughs> I wonder whether, like, what is the, the likelihood or even, you know, how what kind of mechanism there could possibly be that would allow a relatively weak virus um that is kind of mechanically speaking to survive crashing through the atmosphere on an asteroid or a meteor now can survive thousands of degrees celsius but as soon as it gets a little bit of soap game over <laughs> that doesn't seem too likely I, I agree with that uh so yeah this this is a another case where i'm happy to call along with the rest of the scientific community a, a solid bs on this yeah but so speaking of the scientific community has seemingly gotten very divisive at least on twitter but maybe that's true of, of everyone right that might but, just be twitter yeah i think that's just twitter but there's this thing that was brought up uh and it came to my attention through the kind of astro academic twitter and this is looking at modeling uh, conducted by the White House. 
Do you want to share some little info on this beautiful piece of scientific modeling? Yeah. Um, so those that have been paying attention to the, the world news may have noticed that America's not been doing the best job at handling the pandemic. Um, and one of those examples comes from the White House CEA, or as it's known in long terms, the Council of Economic Advisors. So you could say that they have some kind of vested interest in opening America back up and getting commerce running again, supposedly. And they published this uh, graph on Twitter, which was quite um, surprising. They had uh, the, the deaths per day from the coronavirus in the USA against the time. And they fit a whole bunch of models to this, one of which is something called a cubic fit. Um, and our cubic fit is kind of uh, just something that you would throw at any data to see maybe it might fit that. I wouldn't trust a cubic fit as far as I could throw it pretty much. Well, but what, I find, so what I find amazing is that at first there actually was plausibly uh, like a okay reason to use it. And that's if it was a different type of a cubic fit. Um, you'll see this if you've ever made like a plot in Excel and you do like the, joint, like the smooth line between your points if you make, make a little graph. Mm -hmm. um, that's what it's doing. It's doing a cubic fit and basically tries to draw a smooth line between your data points. And so at first it was like, you know, a few people I saw in the comments were like, oh, is it just, is it just that? And then no, someone <laughs> redid it um, and reproduced their analysis. And, and so what they're actually doing, they're fitting, <laughs> they're, they're fitting using like a value of deaths cubed for no reason at all. <laughs> they're fitting, <laughs> so deaths equals, sorry, it's, it would be deaths equals time cubed. Uh, and some other various other terms to try and get it to to look nice. And the problem with this type of fit is that you can kind of add more and more terms on, and and the fit will look closer and closer to your data. But it is, you know, it's meaningless in a way. Yeah. As in you're just making a line that looks a lot like your input data, but for predictions, it's completely meaningless. Yeah, I guess this gets to a good point in model fitting mm. since we both do data science we're pretty qualified i think to to talk about this and the if you if you want to fit a model to data you need some kind of justification of why you're fitting that model to the data yeah um so you know you'd need to think about why would something in this case deaths evolved as time cubed well, does that relate to how the virus spreads or how it becomes more dangerous or something over time? Well, you can go through all those ideas and you'd find that they don't really hold any weight to the current situation. And one of my uh, favorite things to look at on, on this plot is that for the early rise of the deaths per day, their cubic fit completely underrepresents every data point until, like, say, uh, a number of weeks, I think, into the into the data, yeah. and then it overshoots, and then it drastically dives back down under the data. So it's it seems like it's just there to kind of confuse you, to make you think that it's not as bad as what it appears to be. <laughs> um, 
this, this brings up an interesting point though, in that, um, and this is also something that seems to be quite divisive on Twitter, is that as astronomers, we do like to fit a lot of lines to a lot of data. And, you know, it's a large part of our job. Um, and it would seem that there are some astronomers who have tried, you know, done you know, different visualizations of um, different trends in terms of the pandemic. And not just astronomers, I should say, but other physicists and other scientists, data scientists have you know, had a stab mm -hmm. at this. And it's raised an interesting point, which is that if you're not specifically qualified in this area, um, that is, you know, if you're not an actual epidemiologist, someone whose job it is to study how viruses and disease spreads, should you be doing this? Um, should mm -hmm. you be trying to look at these models? So I, I have some opinions on this, but I'm curious to know what you think, first of all. Yeah, that's, that is a, a good question. One I've pondered as well since all of this has started happening. I think if, if you're just doing it for your own kind of information and to inform yourself and maybe uh, not, well, maybe you're friends as well, but that becomes a bit uh, ambiguous when you're posting things online. Um, I don't think there's a problem with doing it for your own curiosity, but if you do these things and then pull the old classic physicist trick of look i've revolutionized your field um give me attention uh, i don't think that's valid thing to do at all so yeah. that's my views on that i think that the the tricky thing in this is that you know where a lot of this data is informing how people should behave um and a lot of it is, you know, you know, whether how afraid you should be of going outside, you know, what mm -hmm. actions you should perform. And that can even affect whether people are going to live or die, which mm -hmm. is very different from, you know, figuring out some, you know, spectrum coming from the sky that's never going to hurt anyone. Um, yeah. So that's, that's one concern that, you know, people pay attention to what scientists say, regardless yeah. of what your field is. Um, and if you say something that's totally wrong and, could, and you could endanger people, um, on the flip side, though, I tend not to like the, the stay in your lane argument. Mm. Um, uh, and I think generally, uh, this is a, a, broad, a broad statement that, you know, astronomers and physicists are pretty well trained as data scientists in many ways. Mm. Um, and so this is what I find kind of odd in that it seems that like a lot of people who've had a stab at this have kind of forgotten <laughs> this part, which is, mm. and this is the point you made before which is that you shouldn't try and fit a model without understanding the underlying physics or in this case, biology, well, it's, yeah. you know, first. And in this case, it's a really complicated mix of, you know, sociology as well as, you know, how people interact and when they move. Um, so epidemiology is its own field for a reason. Um, mm. But, you know, there's nothing, I don't think astronomers or physicists should be prevented for learning about that area or experimenting in that area. Like huh. I said, so long as they're not, you know, trying to portray um, their little visualization as the ground truth, I think they need to be grains of salt. Um, but I think certainly collaboration with epidemiologists should be encouraged and, you know, cross pollination, I think is a great thing in science. Yeah, yeah I, I, I agree with that. that. Yeah, I worry that the negativity of stay in your lane could maybe prevent, you know, you know, people who genuinely want to help and probably can help in some ways, you know, whether it's, access to high performance computing or understanding of, you know, um, very sophisticated fitting techniques and that kind of thing. That could be really, really useful. Not saying of course that epidemiologists don't already know that because they, they definitely do. Um, mm. But I think there's always interesting ideas that can flow when people experiment in different fields. But yeah. with, the, with the big fat caveat that 
lives are at stake here in, in lots of cases. Yeah. yeah. In general, the more resources you have, the more productive you can be. So yeah. I, I agree with that sentiment. Um, and if everyone practiced the same, oh, I better not go onto that field because I'll get gutted on Twitter. Then <laughs> yeah. there may have been a number of advancements in lots of disciplines that would never have happened from people, as you say, cross-pollinating ideas between yeah. disciplines. Yeah, one of my favorite visualizations, um, and there's a, there's a collaboration between um, Minute Physics, who's a you know, big YouTuber, um, and a data scientist whose name um, escapes me, but they have a recent video on this. Um, and rather than doing the, the standard thing, which most astronomers seem to do, which was, hey, look, the, you know, this is growing exponentially. Let's fit a power law. You know, astronomers love to, to see- Don't knock the power law, man. I love astronomers love to try and fit the same model to everything. Just it does show up everywhere, which is really cool and maybe a topic for another time. Um, but this one, rather than showing cases against time, um, it showed the number of cases in the last week. Um, so the number of new cases essentially against the total number of cases. Right. Um, and so that's essentially showing how the virus is growing with respect to the thing that it actually cares about, which is, you know, how many people are in the population hmm. because the you know, virus don't care about time the virus just wants to infect people. Yeah. Um, Does so it care about time cubed though? Oh, that's a really important question. <laughs> that's, that's one we should be putting to the white house. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, if someone like, as what was shown in the comments, I think on, on the, that graph, you know, you just needed someone who's vaguely familiar with any of basic kind of data science principles let alone an epidemiologist, then, you know, you can avoid those kind of mistakes or especially, you know, ones that are being put out by government departments. I mean, that's pretty scary when you see that kind of thing happening. Yeah, definitely. So on the topic of uh, resources and brain power, there was uh, an astronomer in Australia who decided uh, that he would help out the, the cause by <laughs> putting his idle hands to work to try and, devise some kind of device that would stop you from touching your face. Now this was a, a few uh, weeks or months ago because yep. we were timely as ever on, on the Bailey science podcast and then had a series of unfortunate events where he proceeded to get uh, high powered magnets stuck further and further in his nose. So, so I want to defend this guy a little bit here. I mean, so he got dunked on pretty hard. Unreasonably hard, I would say. Yeah. Uh, I think especially because of some of the headlines. Um, so I'm, I'm going by uh, the Guardian article, which I think he was interviewed for even because he, he gives quotes to them directly. Mm -hmm. um, so the way that the story goes, according to this Guardian article, right, was that actually, so he was trying to build um, a coronavirus detecting device or not, not even that he was trying to build a device that would, that warn, would warn you if your, if your hands, hands touched, touched your face. face. Um, so, so this is one of the things you mentioned at the top of the top show, of the show um, um, which is, you know, is, you know, humans, humans we, love we love touching our face. Our face. We, touch we touch it, it. <laughs> like, like um, um, many, many, I forget, I forget the exact numbers. numbers. I think it's hundreds, hundreds of times an hour. It may even be more than that. I just touched my eye then. So you go. And so our hands are how we interact with the world. And so, you know, and that's also where the viruses happen to live. Um, so our hands are busy touching all the things that are in our environment that are potentially have viruses on them. And then our face is where we have a bunch of openings to our body, like mucus glands um, in our eyes, our mouth, our nose, essentially the few areas on our body 
where viruses can actually enter our bloodstream. You know, if viruses get on your skin, on your hands, they're probably not going to infect you. But as soon as they get onto your face, they are much more likely to infect you. And so touching your face is one of the worst things you can do. And so this is probably a pretty good idea. Um, you know, some sort of warning device that's, you know, remind you, you know, oh, don't touch your face, you know. Mm. I, um, and so it involved magnets and like a circuit and that kind of thing that you put on your wrist, I think was the idea. And so you get mm. a little beep boop um, if you want to touch your face. Um, and, and so it turned out that <laughs> what this is, this is pretty great. He, the circuit that he built actually did the opposite in that it was continuously beep until <laughs> you touched your face. <laughs> um, so it, <laughs> I mean, so the, the principle's there, right? Um, yeah. But so he decided to scrap the idea that he had, right? So this, he's now moved past the point of making a device and he's now just playing with magnets. So th yeah. this is where I think the important separation should be in that like he's now just playing with magnets, which is maybe a different topic altogether. And I think he had some pretty, pretty strong magnets. And so he tried to put them onto his nose. You, can, you know how you can sometimes, you can put them on your earlobe to pretend like you've got yeah. like a piercing or something. Fake nose uh, piercings. Yeah, he gave himself a magnet nose piercing. Sweet. Uh, but then realized that those two magnets weren't coming out particularly. <laughs> um, and then he decided that to try and get it out, he would try and use a third magnet to try and remove the other two that were in there. Ah, uh, yes. Add more magnets. Um, and then that magnet, he lost his grip apparently, and that magnet slipped inside, and then he ended up with three magnets stuck in his nose. Uh, yeah, so magnets are no joke. Like, yeah. um, I think, were they neodymium magnets he had? Yeah, uh, so, the, the emergency, so the emergency medical notes, I think, are just hilarious. Um, so two hours ago, had two times neodymium magnets, strong, stuck up bilateral nostrils, so one in each nostril, Stuck to each other via septum bilaterally, attempted removal, tried using two other magnets up left nostril, ended up with four <laughs> magnets up left nostril, one up right, all stuck together via septum, denies difficulty breathing, denies further <laughs> magnets. <laughs> uh, so not to dunk on the guy, I mean, it is a pretty hilarious tale. And it's more of a cautionary tale about playing with really strong magnets. Yeah. Um, but... I think the idea for the not touching your face device actually isn't, isn't completely stupid, even if it does involve, you know, having to own potentially expensive and strong magnets. Yeah. Well, it didn't, if he just went along with how the, the device was working, if you're always touching your face, then you're not touching the world around you. So it's oh my still God. fine, right? We've done it. All right. <laughs> so I guess we're calling a not BS science on this story then. No particular application of technology and science. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. And I probably would have been close to putting magnets in my nose at some point in my life. <laughs> Maybe more as a child rather than as a... Well, I don't know. <laughs> Although, is there much of a difference? Who knows? So I guess in more useful ways of uh, astronomers helping out uh, the, the effort... To, to combat this pandemic is um, a group at Swinburne University as well as a number of other collaborators have worked together to make a, uh, a symptom tracker to uh, make sure that or to act as kind of an informal testing 
So this was developed in the early days when tests weren't as um, prolific as what they are now. So it was perhaps more important to have some way of people to catalog their symptoms and if they matched up with the uh, virus symptoms, and then to work out where these people were as a, a kind of a less robust way of tracking the virus's spread. Yeah, and that, I think this is kind of a, a really neat story of ways astronomers can help because there's a number of, there's a number of astronomers involved in this, and I think in particular um, some computing time, which was previously allocated for astronomy, was yielded in order to provide um, the kind of the back end um, for this particular symptom tracker. Um, and there's an, another thing I quite like about this, which is um, there's other programs that have been run for this before. I think UNSW specifically um, runs the symptom tracker for the flu, and they do that every year, every flu season, to try and track um, the you know the rates of flu spread and how mm. strong it is each year. Um, and so I hope that maybe these kinds of programs become more prevalent in people's you know consciousness. Um, and so mm. one of the positives I could hope can maybe come out of the pandemic is that maybe people are more aware of, you know, infectious diseases and things like the flu and, you know, and things you can do to try and help prevent the spread and try and help the treatment for them as well. And I think programs like this are a really good way to do that. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, so there are outside of the coronavirus impacting our daily lives. It's also impacting our profession, I guess, a little bit, um, which is not yeah. so much of a, a bad thing. So telescopes pretty much all across the world have been shut down for um, the past, I think, month or so now, especially all optical telescopes, so big powerful ones in Chile, on Mauna Kea in Hawaii, and all across the USA and the world. Uh, just aren't observing anymore. The only ones left are robotic observatories, which don't really require human intervention. I will say that uh, radio observatories actually have been the exception. So at least in Australia, um, so the radio telescopes, particularly the ones operated by CSIRO, which are the majority of teles radio telescopes in Australia, um, are still observing currently. I mean, most of they are all um, set up for remote observing as well. Um, and I guess they are... <laughs> in a way robotic you know there's a lot of automation that goes into it um but there are still staff you know online um who you know are working on them at these you know observatories so the, uh, we're very lucky actually um in particular there's a lot of big surveys that are happening right now in radio astronomy and they've been able to you know continue going um so we've been kind of lucky in that respect that radio astronomy is being able to continue so it's good to see that witchcraft can still keep going through even pandemics. Yeah, it's the power of black magic. We keep yeah. the virus away. Incredible. So this has been the first time in a year, potentially two years, that <laughs> we've gotten back to the Barely Science podcast. And while we've been away, this barely scientific stuff certainly hasn't stopped. So there is a whole bunch of stuff that Alec and I can talk about. But the real question is, will it take another year for us to return? Find out next time on the Belly Science Podcast.